0: This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit emmausdenver.com. So this morning, as we kind of get started walking through this this story, um, could you turn maybe the bass down a little bit? My beats. This is what I get for being a sound guy who's also preaching while there's sound issues. <laughs> um, I want to set the scene a little bit and remind us because. Where we've been so far in Isaiah, um, the first 35 chapters was pretty much all prophecy and poetry and Isaiah preaching to the people um, to tell them of, of God's judgment on them. And so we kind of, all of a sudden last week, Aaron kind of started us in this transition phase where there's, there's four chapters here, right smack dab in the middle of Isaiah where it transitions into more of a narrative. And kind of last week, what, what Aaron covered was when the Rabshakeh, this kind of servant messenger of the king of Assyria, he comes to the kingdom of Judah. He comes to Jerusalem with an army, and he kind of starts smack-talking them and smack-talking God, and is trying to convince them um, to not believe in the words of their king, that God will save them. But I think to help kind of give some context to that, The story is actually repeated in the Bible in a couple different places. We see it in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, which are kind of parallel histories um, of the kings of Israel and history of Israel and Judah. And so in 2 Chronicles, in chapter 32, Hezekiah is actually trying to prepare the people. They see that the Assyrian army is coming and he tries to prepare a little bit. He's, you know, Israel has fallen already and a lot of cities in Judah have begun to fall and now they're headed for Jerusalem. And Hezekiah does some things to help fortify their defenses. But he says this to the people who are obviously worried about this impending army. In chapter 32, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And I wanted to throw that out there because I think it's important for the context of where we're at from last week's story and kind of continuing on in this week is that the, the Rabshakeh and the king of Assyria must have known that the people of Judah were somehow encouraged, <laughs> ready to stand against them. And they didn't want that. They wanted them to be afraid. They wanted the words of their king to be, as the Rabshakeh says, chapter 36, mere words. And so this is kind of in a, a direct response to Hezekiah's encouragement to his people, that God is on their side. You know, he even says, the rapture says later in, in a, chapter 36, verse 20, he says, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. He's basically saying, look, don't listen to your king. You should know that, that you guys are no different than the last kingdoms we've conquered. He wants them to be afraid, to give up hope. And that's kind of where we left off. And in this part of the story, Hezekiah received the word of all the things we talked about last week, of all the things that Rabshakeh was saying to contradict him to his people. Even to the point where, you know, there's a section last week where he, they ask him not to speak in their language because he's afraid that the that the like more common people on the walls would, who didn't know their language, would, would hear it in their language, and the guys like, no, I'm gonna say it in their language because I want everybody here to be afraid. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's like a pretty bleak situation. Um, but they receive Hezekiah now receives word of this going on in the the first verses of chapter 37, and he immediately it, it says he when he heard it he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth. That's a sign, in, in Jewish culture, it's a sign of mourning. It's a sign of despair. And that's kind of what he, his immediate reaction to this, because he knows what happened to the other nations. He's not unaware of, of all the accomplishments of Assyria, and especially if in his case, he's very much aware of what Assyria did to the kings of the nations that they conquered. And I'll just leave it at, it's not PG. And what I want to point out today, as we kind of look over this story, section of the story, is that we kind of here get a series of responses. uh, Hezekiah responding to the king of Assyria, king of Assyria responding to Hezekiah and so forth. Um, But it's also the response to God. How are they responding to what God is doing in his story? Because I think what Isaiah is trying to demonstrate in this, this kind of breaking point in the book of Isaiah is to show what happens when we have a prideful response and what happens when we have a humble response towards what God is working in history. And, we, and what we will find out is that there is always a response from God to how we respond to him. Ray Orland pointed this out in one of the commentaries I was reading. He said, it is not this world with whom we have to deal. Primarily, it is always God. It is always God. I want that to sink in a little bit. Every response that we have to what's going on in our lives, what's going on in the world around us, Is ultimately a response to God. If God is sovereign, if God is in control, if He is the author of all things, then how we respond to any given thing going on in our lives, it's not to the world primarily, as Orland's saying, it's to God, because He's the one writing these things into being. You know, Aaron even reminded us a couple of weeks ago of this truth when he referenced Jesus talking about, you know, what you do to the least of these or what you haven't done for them, you've done to me. It's this consistent idea in scripture that all of our interactions <laughs> with the world around us is ultimately with God because it's his plan, it's his story. And so this morning, as we kind of look, zoom in on this section of this story, this kind of change in the book of Isaiah, I want to to look at two things. I want to look at the response of men. How, How do we respond to what's going on? And the response of God. How does God respond accordingly? So let's jump into this. Let me pray before we jump into those things. Father, this morning, I pray that that you would use this time together for your glory. That you would use the words words spoken and the words sung in prayer and um, just time spent together. That you would use all these things for your glory, for your kingdom. I pray that as we look at this story, God would you allow it to to affect our hearts, to change our hearts, to that we could see more of who you are because of of your word that you've given us, the truth that you've declared over us. Um, I pray that would be the focus this morning as we, we hear your word given. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So let's jump in. First things first. Hezekiah is obviously distressed. We get that from his morning. But kind of some of the context that Aaron talked about last week is that Kind of more recently, Hezekiah has been on a path of restoration for his nation's faith in God. So the past kings, his father and his father's father have kind of wrecked things in terms of Israel and Judah's obedience towards God. And there's been a lot of like blurred lines in their worship. And Hezekiah had been on a mission to fix that. He tore down the Asherah, he tore down these false idols that came from other nations and he's trying to restore temple worship in God. And so as a response to, to what he hears about what the rapture is saying, his immediate response is to, is to send word to Isaiah. Isaiah, who is the guy that, if anyone in Israel, is assumed has the most direct line to God <laughs> as being one of his prophets. who has been preaching all these years. And so he sends his servants to go seek Isaiah out. And this is what they say to him. Verses three and four, they say, To him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke. And out of disgrace, children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Essentially, Hezekiah is saying, Isaiah, can you, ask, can you like go ahead and ask God how he's going to respond to all this smack talk? Like, I imagine God is not ignoring this. And they, they specifically ask, they say, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Essentially, they're saying, God, we know from your story past that even if there are only a few that trust in you, even if there are only a few faithful left, will you not keep your promise and deliver them. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah when, when God say, saves Lot and his family. We see that in, in Egypt when God saves the whole people out of Egypt. It's a kind of reoccurring theme. You no, know, Jesus says, I will leave the 99 to go after the one. And so they, they, ask, they ask God to do this because they know that He's done it before, and he could do it again to lift up the remnant. You know, I kind of want to make a side note there, um, just as we look at at how this should affect us um, in the here and now. I think a lot of times we can feel like the remnant in Denver, um, especially in a, just in a time and in history in our, you know, specifically in our nation and or just Western culture in general. There's been a lot of of leaving the church, of leaving, you know, post-Christianity. And yeah, I think for, for us to gather here every week, um, to declare God's glory and to see Christ um, is kind of an anomaly (laughs) in our culture and especially in Denver. And so I just want, I hope that that encourages you that the truth that God does hear, he does see the remnant that is left. And if it kind of seems at times that, that, We are part of that remnant, the faithful few in Denver, that God is concerned for you. God hears you. So I just, yeah, as a side note, hope that's encouraging to you. So Isaiah does respond. He responds with God's word to, to Hezekiah. Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So I think what we learn is God does respond and he responds because he takes his reputation seriously. And it's often at the request of his people that God goes to bat for his own name. That our words, what we, what we ask of God do have meaning. They do have an effect. I think that should also give us encouragement as we consider our position in our culture. So as this goes on, the Rabshka, he returns home. He meets with the king who's, of course, battling some other nation. He's, like, busy conquering another nation while he has sent an army to conquer this nation. It's kind of his hobby, I guess, taking over kingdoms. But the rapture returns, and he lets him know what's, what's going on and kind of how Judah is pushing back against his threats. So the king sends another messenger to give word to Hezekiah, and it's to keep him scared. They want them to be scared. So he says to his servant, he says, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he goes on and he basically just gives us a list. He's like, If you don't believe me, here's a list of all the nations that I've struck down, of all the supposed gods that I've disproven. And he's kind of doubling down on the word that the rapture has already given them. That there's there's no reason to trust Hezekiah, to trust his word that their God will save them because he is as powerless as the other gods that he's knocked down. So I'll see you, I'm busy right now, but I'll see you soon. It's essentially what he's saying to them. And I want to walk that back because what have we already established? that every response in life, everything that we do, ultimately comes back to God. Every response that we have in life is a response to God, to what he's working in his creation. I think what we see here from the King is an obvious response that demonstrates pride, demonstrates a posture but I think if we're honest, we've all taken with God at various times in our lives. And no, I'm not saying that all of us have, have gotten to the degree that he's going to. <laughs> That's literally like, God, you don't exist at all. Like you're insignificant. Maybe we, we don't say that. But I think sometimes our actions show that. The amount of faith that we, <laughs> we actually demonstrate and the God who we, we say we believe in we say is powerful. I think it comes out when we try to do things within our own power. I was talking about this with Aaron. I was kind of processing a sermon that I I think one of the ways that we can look for this in our life of how, how do we know if we're responding with pride or not to what God is doing is oftentimes in our prayers. What our prayers look like. I said, you know, I think it's funny, like, I think a lot of times we end up praying things that we could kind of do ourselves. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Like, we'll ask, we'll ask God to provide something or to do something for us that is essentially something that, like, we could take credit for for ourselves if we wanted to. Um, you know, like, a relevant thing. Like, God, I'd would you... Provide me with a new job. <laughs> yeah. Getting real. Getting real smart. Yeah, but like we will say like God, would you provide me with a new job? But you know we could also say that we just we did the work in going out and interviewing and and looking for the job and we kind of give this credit to God. Um, that's only kind of partial credit. And I'm not saying that like every time we prayed for something like that, that it was insincere. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just think we need to, to realize that for as blatant and obvious as Sennacherib's response to the power of God is, that that, that isn't absent from our lives. <laughs> that pride isn't absent from our relationship with God and our sin. And that's something we need to, to recognize and, and work through. Truth is that Sennacherib, he had every opportunity to believe, really. If he heard Hezekiah's faith and, and actually thought, and well, maybe this God is different. <laughs> maybe this nation is different. He had a chance to be humble, but he, he wasn't. So like I said, we don't always take our rebellion seriously. But the truth is that we can always count on God to take it seriously. He is holy, he deserves glory, and he's gonna have it one way or the other. And that's what we see play out in the story. So that's the not great response. Sacrub responding in pride and disbelief to who God is and what he's doing. But now we're gonna look at how Hezekiah handles it, the other kind of human response. This is what happens. He, he gets the word, And he again, he returns to the house of the Lord and he prays this prayer. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria, laid waste to all the nations and their lands and cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I want to spend some time kind of dissecting this prayer a little bit and some things that I think we should, we should pay attention to and his posture towards God first thing is this that he begins his prayer as a reminder of the truth of who God is he says "O Lord of hosts God of Israel so he's saying you are my God and it's my God who is enthroned in heaven it's my God who is the transcendent one he says you are the God you are alone of all the kingdoms of the earth he's saying god you are the only true god no matter what other gods any kingdom in the earth is worshiping you are the one who is real you are the one who has true power there's a power in remembering who god is I, I see this, this as a helpful pattern for us when we are seeking to respond to what's going on in our lives, to our Heavenly Father. I think this should be a pattern in our own prayer, that we should remind ourselves, we should affirm back to God who he is and what he has done. Because when we remind ourselves of the truth of who God is, I think it helps us realize how little power the other things in our lives that we go to have. The, our new job isn't what is enthroned above the cherubim. Our accomplishments don't give us the right to say that we alone have influence <laughs> for the kingdoms of the earth. Like Those are ridiculous statements, obviously. I don't think anyone here thinks that about themselves. But I think in our rebellion sometimes we're kind of saying that. We're saying like we are the the captains of our fate, so to say. And when we remind ourselves that we're not, that it's God who is, it forces us to change our response. It forces us to change our perspective. That's what Hezekiah is doing. All these things he's saying are a direct response that, that contrast what Sennacherib is saying. When Sennacherib says, your God is no different than the other gods that I've torn down, Hezekiah is saying, God, you are the most different because you are the only one that's real, the only one that matters. He said the only way he was able to cast those other gods down is because they were just work of men's hands, wood and stone. You know, there's a reason that part of the Ten Commandments is to not create idols, images of God, because he can't be contained in them. God is wise in that. So, not only does he focus on who God is in this prayer, but he reminds himself of who he is because of who God is. He's a creature. Created. Do you guys remember our gospel identity questions that we did a long time ago? Where do we start? Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What do I do? We talked about that a while ago. I mean, and one of the things we talked about is that that order matters a lot. <laughs> it has a big effect. Because what if you do the other, or, other way around? Then I think your response is more like snack rib. What, what have I done? I've conquered nations. Therefore, who am I? I'm essentially God. I'm the one with power. I'm the one who does, who accomplishes. <laughs> That's not what Hezekiah says. He says, "You alone are God over the kingdoms of the Earth. You have made heaven and Earth. You have made me, You are God, not me. I am powerless to save. You are not." And I think the heart behind this prayer I should pay attention to is humility. He says, Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. What is his chief focus? It's not self-preservation. I mean, he, yes, he asks God to save, to save his people from the hand of, of the Syrian king. But he isn't saying, God, rescue me out of this. He's not saying, God, preserve my life in this so that I can be safe. He said, he's saying, God, if you're gonna save us, save us so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. He's saying, God, if, if you are the one who deserves glory, then defend your reputation. Defend your reputation by defending us. That's what Hezekiah's prayer is. So I wanna ask this, something to reflect on. Whose glory are you most concerned with? When it comes to prayer, when it comes to interacting with the things going on in your life and responding to God in prayer, when you pray, whose glory are you most concerned with? Maybe we don't outright ask for God to glorify us. But whose are we most concerned with? Are our prayers more about self-preservation? Keeping the things that that we desire or having things go the way that we think they ought? Are we more concerned with God being the master of our fate and actually praying for that, asking for that? You know, do we pray for God to be God? Something I think we should think about. It's something Hezekiah's prayers is demonstrating for us. You know, last week I was, I kind of snuck into the back of the room, but I led worship at Redemption Church uh, last Sunday to fill in for Zach. And if you don't remember, that's the church that we did the worship night with back in March. Um, and the sermon they're walking through the Gospel of Mark right now, and James is preaching on when Peter confesses that he is the Christ. Essentially, he says, "You know, who who do people say that I am?" And they say, "Well, some think you're uh, Elijah, some think you're John the Baptist. Others say that one of the prophets, just like a generic prophet." <laughs> Jesus is saying, "But who do you say that I am?" And without pause, Peter says, "You are the Christ." You're not a reflection of somebody else. You are the somebody that those people were waiting for. And it's interesting, James pointed out that that, that story is consistent in the synoptic, synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That story is, is consistent, and it's the turning point in those stories. You know, they had been spending time with Jesus, and Jesus is doing these teachings, and then once they hit this story, then the focus becomes the cross and his journey towards Jerusalem and the crucifixion and resurrection. And kind of the same thing is happening here. Isaiah has been preaching. He's been telling God's people, remember who God is. Remember your place. (laughs) Repent for the, the ways that you haven't been consistent, that you haven't been obedient towards your father. And it's kind of this turning point where Hezekiah has a choice. As a king who's been trying to be faithful again, he can continue to, to stock up ideas and like how they're gonna defend Jerusalem within his own power, or he can turn to God and ask for him to do the impossible. It's a turning point in Isaiah. And that's what happens. 'Cause the truth is what Isaiah has been preaching so saying is that God's people haven't honestly looked that much different than Assyria. They've been responding to the created things. Their hope is in lesser things. And so what we see in Hezekiah's response is really he's he's responding on behalf of his people in his prayer saying we're done with trusting in the other things. We're done in trusting with Egypt or giving offerings to Assyria to appease them. We're done with that. What we're turning to now is the one who is capable. That's what we see here. It's a, it's a mark of humility. So now in the story, we, we, we see that. We see how the king of Assyria responds to God is. To Hezekiah's words. And we see how Hezekiah responds to what's happening to God in humility. And so now we have a shift and it, the story shows us how God responds to their actions, to the response of men. So Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah that, that God has heard his prayer. He says this in verse 23, of God's, God says, "'Whom have you mocked and reviled?' Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. <clears throat> essentially, God's saying, dude, you have no idea <laughs> who you're messing with. You have no idea who you've been mocking. And he essentially goes on to describe how arrogant they've been they their mocking. And in verse 26, he drops this bombshell. He says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities and crash in heaps. And he he goes on. What he's saying is like, dude, you don't get it. Anything you have to brag about is because I let it happen, because I gave it to you. That it was a part of my plan that you would have power and influence. And kind of what we see in the story is essentially so that he could knock it down. (laughs) So he could prove himself the one who has true power. He says, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you've raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. He's saying, I've paid attention to your pride, to your denial of my existence. So he says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. In his response, God is telling us exactly who he is. Who exactly it is that we respond to when we make our decisions, either with pride or with humility. What does Scripture tell us? God opposes the proud, He gives grace to the humble. It's exactly what's happening here. And so the rest of the story shows us the direct results of Hezekiah's humility and Sennacherib's pride. God tells Hezekiah that that he's going to defend the remnant, that he heard them and he will defend them. He says that his people will take root downward and bear fruit upward. As if to say, because you have deepened your faith with me, because you abide in me, I will bear fruit in you. I will keep my promise to make you a blessing and to bless you. For Assyria and Snakrib, though, it's not so great. Not great news here. He tells Hezekiah, he's like, Look, you don't need to worry. I have your back. This guy's not getting anywhere near Jerusalem. And the the chapter kind of ends with letting us know what happens, how God provides that. And kind of, you know, like one, there's like all this interaction between, you know, these two parties going back and forth. And then in one sentence, Isaiah is like, so he sent an angel and killed 185,000 Like, no big deal. Like, God just wiped them out. Like, God just went ahead and wiped out, like, the whole army. And they, like, the ones who were left, like, woke up in the middle, like, in the morning, like, oh, crap. Like, everyone's dead. We should probably go home. (laughs) Like, that's amazing. That's impressive. You, like, you don't hear stories like that in, like, today's world. But that's what happened. That's how God responded. He opposed them, very much so, in their pride. And, you know, the, the ironic thing we find at the end of the story is that just as Hezekiah had gone into the house of the Lord, he went to the, the dwelling place of his God. Sennacherib went to the house of his God. It says he returned home and lived in Nineveh, and he was worshiping in the house of Nishraq, his God. And it's there his own sons murder him. the contrast couldn't be more obvious that when Hezekiah goes to his God, he receives life. And Sennacherib relying on his God <laughs> receives death. What do we do with all this? With the reality that, that how we respond whether it's with humility or with pride that things going on in our lives, that's a response to God. Now, Isaiah said this about God's reasoning that he gives for defending them. He says in in verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Here's here's the takeaway from the story. God will always defend his name. God will always defend his own glory. It's just what he does. It's what you see over and over and over again in scripture. Kind of regardless of how bad of a job his people have done regarding him, God's chief concern is his own glory. It's literally the reason we exist at all, to glorify him. It's why we're made in his image, to reflect him, to give glory back to himself. And I think it's interesting that he says, he does it for his own sake and for the sake of my servant David. See, he, Isaiah's alluding to Israel's kind of prototype king, the king that all kings are, are compared to. And we'll see later on in this kind of the next section of Isaiah that we'll go through next year, where Isaiah starts to speak more about who this one is that's going to come from the line of David. You know, it's it's a lineage that Hezekiah is a part of, he's of the house of David. But we know that it's more than that, that the one it is to come. The who we should say that Jesus is, is the Christ, the one of David, he's, he's the better king. And we see God is defending his people because it's what he planned long ago. Just as he planned Assyria's rise and fall, he planned for his son to save us, for the rod of Jesse to spring up. And we see that the Hezekiah in a way As David reflecting, foreshadowing who Jesus is, Hezekiah is foreshadowing who Jesus is. We see this in his prayer. That Hezekiah, on behalf of his people, goes to his God and asks for salvation, asks that God would be glorified. Asks for God to save. See, Jesus is the better Hezekiah. Like Hezekiah, he he mediates for us. He goes before the Father. But Jesus was always faithful. Jesus, Jesus didn't have to turn back to make a reform in his life. He was always faithful to God and his word. He always approached the Father in humility Like Hezekiah, when he faced certain death on the cross, he asked for God's will to be done. He was first and foremost concerned with God getting the glory. And the author of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus shows you and I the way to respond, the way to respond to the father whatever may come. You know, most of us aren't facing armies, locking down our doors, or in Jesus's case, public execution. But we face difficult things. All of us have things in life we are wrestling with, wrestling with God with. But we've been given a responsibility in how we respond to what God is doing both in whatever it is we accomplish, or what afflicts us. And I wanna point this out. It can be a little awkward, especially for the Enneagram nines out there. But there's not really any middle ground in this. I know we like to see a lot of things in, with gray, but this is a pretty black and white issue. And it's kind of why we need Jesus to be the perfecter of our faith, our mediator before God. Because as we see play out in this story, is that you're either with God or you're against him. There's not as much neutrality in that as we think. I'm not trying to dog on the nines, we all do that. (laughs) But you guys like middle ground. Jesus himself, he said that you're either with him or against him. He says that in Matthew. Truth is, like Orland said, if, if we're dealing primarily with God in all things, if everything that we, every circumstance, every situation and how we respond ultimately comes back to, to the Father, then we kind of need to own that reality the black and white reality of that. There is no, I kind of trust in God, you know, in and, and some things and in other things, I'm just focusing on what I can do and like hopefully that glorifies God. I think that's kind of how we live. Like we don't maybe say that out loud, but I know my actions and my prayers <laughs> would show that to a degree. And that's why the gospel is so good. That even when we're wishy-washy about that, that we are presented blameless, presented spotless because Jesus was very black and white about that. <laughs> he only did the right thing. He only trusted God. He only gave God glory. And he shares that righteousness. He shares that, that trust with us as we're united in him. He perfects our faith for us, even when our faith is weak. That's the beauty of the gospel. So maybe we can respond in this way. We can respond with being more zealous for God to receive the glory in our prayers. Pray like Hezekiah, and maybe it's that we pray less for God to change our circumstances, and we pray prayers that puts God at the center. We ask for, just simply ask for God to be God. Not saying that it's wrong to desire change or for when things suck <laughs> to ask for them to be better. God is compassionate, he, <laughs> he's not trying to oppose us when we come to him in humility. But that's kind of the point, is that we need to come to him in humility. We need to seek his kingdom first. It's just that, it's that dance of, of our responsibility, human responsibility and God's sovereignty that we need to wrestle with. So yeah, let me end with this. What, what would change if we prayed like that? What would change if when we prayed, we believed that God actually responds, that he responds to our faith? That when we prayed for the impossible, God can actually accomplish it. I hope you see that in Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah, the one who, who's just a prototype, who's a a shadow, of what was to come in Jesus. And that we can, we can thank Jesus for his mediation. We can thank him for the ways that he has showed us how to go to the Father with humility. Even in the, the face of impossibly hard things that come into our lives. That's God that knows our sitting down and our going out. And it's ultimately in his hands. We can rest in that this morning. We can trust that he is good. Let's pray.